HPPodcraft.com. There was thunder in the air on the night I went to the deserted mansion atop Tempest Mountain to find the lurking fear. I was not alone, for foolhardiness was not then mixed with that love of the grotesque and the terrible, which has made my career a series of quests for strange horrors in literature and in life. With me were two faithful and muscular men for whom I had sent when the time came. Men long associated with me in my ghastly explorations because of their peculiar fitness. This is, of course, the first chapter of The Lurking Fear. What are you, what are you talking about? Who are you? I am Chad Pfeiffer. Oh, Chad. Nice who, to meet you. I'm who, Chris Lackey. Chris Lackey. How would you like to co-host a show with me? I'd be delighted. Wonderful. Why don't we call it the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast? That sounds great. And we'll put it at hppodcraft.com? I love it. <laughs> hey, you know, Chad. Glad to have all, your consent. In all seriousness, this is our 30th episode. No way, really? Yeah. Uh-huh. Man, that went fast. It did go fast. Holy smoke. So just, you know, sit on that for a moment. Yeah. Wow. Who, who was that that we just heard? That's Paul McLean. He's better known as Paul of Cthulhu. Aha! Of Yogsothoth.com. That's correct? right, yes. A yeah. uh, wonderful job, podcast that they do over there focuses primarily on the role-playing game, Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. Mm-hmm. And this week we are covering The Lurking Fear. That excerpt was from the first chapter of The Lurking Fear, The Shadow on the Chimney. These chapters in the story have titles because they are serialized. Yes, this was uh, in just as Herbert West Reanimator was in Homebrew. Homebrew. And it was uh, broken up into four parts. Uh, mm-hmm. This time, however, Lovecraft was really stoked because he didn't have to do a summary of last week's within the story. Right. The publisher put a little synopsis before the story started. So, exactly. So that, you know, it was easier for everybody. There were some rejected titles for the story, actually. The Prowling Anxiety was one of them. Uh, the Loitering Awkwardness. The Creeping Sad Face. This is all true. And uh, <laughs> this one, I actually think would have been a better title. The Skulking Ball Tingle. <laughs> They were afraid that would turn off some well, of the female readers. So, you, you, so you've got that information from uh, I do, yeah. one of Jos- Joshi's books, I assume? Uh, no, it's just, you know, I'll tell you about it when we're off. Okay, off, okay. Off yeah, Great. yeah those, but those were really but good. But yeah, I can, I can back good, it up. Good titles. Thanks. <laughs> There's all kinds of great descriptions. I, I just want to say that in this story, Lovecraft is the king of the hyphenated adjective. He sure is, he, man. He creates little adjectival phrases by hyphenating two words. I counted 36 of them. In here, and I actually want to just read this list before we go too deep into the synopsis because I think it provides kind of a fun preview for the story. He talks about the ancient lightning scarred tree, the weedy, fulgurite pitted earth, hand woven baskets. That's pretty standard. The antique grove circled stone house, half glimpsed fiend, his self imposed isolation, the last mound covered reaches of Tempest Mountain, the vast box like pile, tree muffled thunder, a wide four poster bedstead. Bedstead again. That's that's gonna the forest swathed mansion, wild armed titan trees, brain blasting shadow, a non material. Agency, the horror visited Hamlet, ill fated squatter Hamlet, the oak girt mansion, the low snake like mound, giant bat winged griffin, trans cosmic gulf, far reaching tentacles, the tempest racked night, the lightning pierced region, a wolf fanged ghost, a wealthy New Amsterdam merchant, didn't need to hyphenate New Amsterdam, did it anyway, the sullen odd eyed Martinses, far away hills, my single minded fever, a weak roofed. Habit. Those vast serpent-like roots. This one's beautiful. Moonlitten, mound-marked meadows. Alliteration and two hyphenates in that one. The briar-choked cellar. Rat-like scurry. A loathsome night-spawned flood of organic corruption. Mound-like <laughs> tentacles. And the terrible and thunder-crazed House of Martens. That's all of them. Wow. That's a lot. That's great. Yeah. Amazing. That pleases me. <laughs> it pleases me, too. That's why I wrote them all down. 
this guy and his two muscular companions. Yes. What are they up to? Well, he says... We had started quietly from the village because of the reporters who still lingered about after the eldritch panic of a month before. The nightmare creeping death. Later, I thought, they might aid me. But I did not want them then. Would to God I had let them share the search, that I might not have had to bear the secret alone for so long. To bear it alone for the fear the world would call me mad, or gold mad itself, at the demon implications of the thing. Now that I am telling it anyway, lest the brooding make me a maniac, I wish I'd never concealed it. For I, and I only, know what manner of fear lurked on that spectral and desolate mountain. Now you heard the name Martins on that li- in that list. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Martins mansion is up on top of Tempest Mountain, and that, yes. that's where the lurking fear dwells. Right, really. right. And the, Mar- the Martins mansion, I mean, we find out more about yeah. it, it later. He this, doesn't give too story. much history in the first chapter, yeah. but, um, but he sort of lays out the facts of why he's here to investigate. He says, For over a hundred years, the antique, grove-circled stone house had been the subject of stories incredibly wild and monstrously hideous. Stories of a silent, colossal, creeping death which stalked abroad in summer. With whimpering insistence, the squatters told tale of a demon which seized lone wayfarers after dark, either carrying them off or leaving them in a frightful state of gnawed dismemberment. While sometimes they whispered of blood trails toward the distant mansion, some said the thunder called the lurking fear out of its habitation, while others said the thunder was its voice. So it's a, it's a Castle Dracula kind of stuff. Yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, an old, scary mansion Yeah, up on the hill. And the townspeople who are routinely destroyed by something up there. Uh-huh. This has been happening for a long time. There was an incident a month before yep. that has gotten this particular searcher after horror Yeah, all interested in the area of Tempest Mountain. Mm-hmm. Uh, All correct. Everything right. you're saying, I, I agree with it. <laughs> Which is up in the Catskills. It is in the Catskills. Uh, in New York. And there are hints in this chapter that has something to do with the Martens family history. Right. Something about they have dissimilar eyes, and there was some murder that cursed the family line. Uh, although there are no more Martenses up there, the place is deserted. Yep. Um, Martens is a Dutch name. Yep. That is correct. Uh, I think that there might be some biographical significance to that with him. Well, Martens is... People speculate a little bit on, on what this is. It, it could either be that Martin's was the street that was right next to Sonia Green's apartment in, in New, New York. York. Right. And New York having been in New Amsterdam at yeah. one time, there's lots of Dutch names there still. Like Flatbush, Brooklyn is where. Brooklyn, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Brooklyn is a, is a Dutch name. Harlem. Yeah. Uh, Staten. Well, I, New York was New Amsterdam. Yeah. So. As, as the song says. It, what, what song? Even old New York was once New Amsterdam. Why they change it, I can't say. People just like it better that way. I have, no idea. I have right. no idea what you're talking you about. You just were trying to make me <laughs> jerk. The terror which brought me to the scene was a sudden and portentous confirmation of the mountaineers' wildest legends. One summer night, after a thunderstorm of unprecedented violence, the countryside was aroused by a squatter stampede which no mere delusion could create. The pitiful throngs of natives shrieked and whined of the unnameable horror which had descended upon them, and they were not doubted. They had not seen it, but had heard such cries from one of their hamlets that they knew a creeping death had come. This tragedy happens. Uh, there was a terrible storm. Yeah, in fact, the Tempest Mountain gets its name because thunderstorms are always rocking yes, it. It's frequent. Always. It's frequent. Yeah. In fact, he describes the earth around it uh, in, in the beginning as fulgurite pitted, which I had to look up. Oh. Fulgurites are um, 
They're little natural hollow glass tubes that are formed when lightning, oh, lightning hits. superheats the ground when it hits. Right. Yeah. Oh, so I didn't. Kind of, I did not know that. Yeah, it's kind of cool. That's from the Latin fulgur, meaning thunderstorm. Oh, very nice. Or thunderbolt, rather. Thunderbolt. After one storm, there was kind of this mass murder. That yeah. Basically, all of these, a bunch of these hill people. I think what do they say? Like sixty of them. Yeah. Uh, well, no, yeah, I think it's like seventy-five people uh, are gone. Oh, right. A third of them they find remains from. Right. So this lightning hit this uh, settlement yeah. and uh, it ruined, it dropped the floor out from or the ground out from yes. under a bunch of houses, and then it was just carnage that they found. So they know that something descended on these people and massacred them. But the, the great thing about his wording there is uh, the, the pitiful. Yeah, I know his his totally unmasked contempt for yeah. poor poor uh, destitute people. You know, it's funny. He as as isolated as Lovecraft is, he's definitely a city guy. Oh yeah. You know, he's freaked out by the countryside. It scares him. Yeah, he likes being in Providence. <laughs> so you know, another thing that was strange about this is the village that was attacked was three miles away from the Martins' mansion. Yeah, it was. Still, the townspeople say, "Hey, it's got something to do with that place," but the police are like, mm, "Okay." They go up there and they look around, and it's deserted. Yeah. So they don't really investigate. But uh, when the story hits the papers, a whole bunch of investigators descend on the town. Right, journalists, absolutely. right? Yeah, the yeah. date is given as 1921. Um, yeah, August 5th. Yeah. And when our narrator reads about it, he heads down there, too. Mm-hmm. But he kind of waits for all the nut jobs and you know, Right, just the things that calm down. Mm-hmm. And also, not just nut jobs, but people that aren't as clever as, as he is. Right. You know, like, the, there seems to be a little bit of an air of superiority uh, exactly. to, the, from, to this guy. We're back to now yeah. where we started. Our guy and his two muscled friends, they, they head up to the mansion now that people have mostly moved on to other scandals right. to cover. Yeah. And he's, he's sort of been through the house before, so he's made a plan. Oh, right. Yes, you yes, know, yes. He, he's, he's, he's been around in the daylight hours, but he wants to get up there during a thunderstorm. He thinks that thunderstorms are calling up some kind of death demon from the house. Yeah, or, or something. I mean, he, yeah. he's pretty open-minded at this point in the story to know exactly what it is. It could be a monster. It could be some kind of phenomenon. So he does have a plan with these two guys. His idea is he doesn't know if it's coming from the house or if it's coming from outside of the house. Right. So him and the guys, the two muscly dudes that are with him. And they have names. It's actually it's George Bennett and William Toby. Bennett and Toby. Yeah. So Bennett and Toby and him are armed and ready to, to rock in case, you know, if it's a creature, if it's a monster, whatever the heck it is. The way they do this is they go up to uh, Mar- Martin's old room. Yeah, yeah Jan Martin. Jan. Right. Jan who, he doesn't say who he is yet, but yes. he says we're in Jan Martin's room. Somebody important in yeah. Mar- uh, Martin's family. And they push the bed right up against the window, and he right. puts a ladder out the window. Yeah, three rope ladders go out the window uh-huh. on one side. On one side, and the other side is the, the open door and the fireplace. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, whatever it is that's killing people comes from the outside, we can go in the house and take shelter. And if it yeah. comes from out of the house, we could, you know, we could split. Right, and they all have automatics. Yes. Right, yes. so so they spread out in a little pattern on the bed. Uh-huh. It's like a fun little goofy sleepover. Yes, uh, yes. Where the two... the, the Muscle-bound guys are on each side of him, and he's in the middle. Right. But the plan is f***ed right away because they, you know, they all start falling asleep. Right. <laughs> yeah. Which is this is one of those things. I'm like, don't all lay in bed. One guy yeah. should be, you know, sitting up and right. walking around. Guarding while you're lying down in a bed seems like a real bad idea. <laughs> right. And he's so surprised. He's like, oh, this this sleepiness came over us. It was it was a drowsiness. I'm like, yeah, you're laying in bed in right. the middle of the night. Come on. <laughs> of course you're going to be tired. But anyway. It, well, so he he's staring at the fireplace and drifting off and having dreams. He notices the other guys are too. And then there's this big bolt of thunder. It wakes him up a little bit, and he realizes that one of the other sleepers has put his arm across his chest. And he drowsed. He, goes to sleep again and then there's a huge bolt of of thunder and he realizes that Toby is gone Gone. but the arm of the other guy is still on his chest 
Then came the devastating stroke of lightning which shook the whole mountain, lit the darkest crypts of the Holy Grove, and splintered the patriarch of the twisted trees. In the demon flash of a monstrous fireball, the sleeper started up suddenly while the glare from beyond the window threw his shadow vividly upon the chimney above the fireplace from which my eyes have never strayed. That I am still alive and sane is a marvel I cannot fathom. I cannot fathom it, for the shadow on that chimney was not that of George Bennett or of any other human creature, but a blasphemous abnormality from hell's nethermost craters. A nameless, shapeless abomination which no mind could fully grasp, and no pen could even partly describe. In another second I was alone in the accursed mansion, shivering and gibbering. George Bennett and William Toby had left no trace, not even of a struggle. They were never heard of again. Yeah. So, you snooze, you lose. Yeah, <laughs> something was in the chamber. Uh, it killed his two friends, and it was taking a nap with him? Yeah, that's not... Maybe maybe what he thought was the arm on him was maybe the, the creature bumped into him, and he just thought, but that doesn't make any sense. So, yeah. Did the creature cuddle up with him and like get snuggly for a well, little he bit? Well, because he says that the sleeper started up suddenly. So I think, you know, the thing had taken care of his two buddies and then was just hanging out there, you know? Yeah, or, gosh, I don't, I don't know. Or maybe it was, maybe it touched him and woke him, and then and as it touched him, he woke up. Right, maybe it was Bennett's arm on him, and then, yeah, and then when it, like, it came off, it, yeah, it was the guy tearing him away. Yeah. Maybe. Could be. It's a little ambiguous, but that's kind of scary. You know, it you don't really know scary. what the heck's going on and what exactly happened. And with that, we go into the second chapter, A Passer in the Storm. Yeah, our guy somehow, after that incident, managed to get back to his car and, and slip unobserved back to the village. Him saying unobserved leads me to believe he didn't report yeah, no, any of it. He didn't tell anybody. <laughs> didn't tell the police. He didn't, you know. But he does feel he needs to tell somebody. Right. I mean, this, this is pretty it's it's pretty intense stuff. Pretty intense. So he and, goes, he's got a journalist buddy that he likes. Right. This guy that he met named Arthur Monroe. 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 Uh, he's about 35, and, and our guy says he's got intelligence and taste, so I assume that means he's also arrogant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I get along with him well. He hates all these townspeople, too. Right, right, right. Yeah, well, yeah, he's kind of got dark hair. You know, seems very striking and cool, and I mean, his description. Oh, also, uh, just a little mm-hmm. backstory. We talked about Lovecraft kind of was a lonely child and all yeah. those things. But in doing some research on the story, I find out that the Monroe name was the name of these two brothers, Chester and Harold, that Lovecraft knew when he was a kid. Not only did he have friends, uh, Harold had gotten back in touch with Lovecraft uh, a little over a year before uh, this story was written. So, hmm. like, he, like, refound, uh, you know, this old yeah, friend of his from when he was a kid. Right. And then, friends on Facebook. Exactly. But then they went and revisited a clubhouse that they had constructed together when they were boys. Well, there you go. Maybe Lovecraft isn't as a lonely, you know, kid in his room as much yeah. as, you know, it kind of was led to believe. There you go. Maybe. Uh, and yeah. he built a clubhouse. That's, I mean, that requires some. Yeah. You got to work together. Yeah. You got to work together and you got to, you know, hammer some nails and lift mm-hmm. some wood. And you I thought. to form a club. <laughs> well, you know, I thought Lovecraft would be too busy, like, you know, wiping his brow and, and <laughs> complaining about the humidity and stuff. Right. But. Now, the Monroe in this story, Arthur, he hears our protagonist out, and he doesn't think he's crazy. No. You know? But he does say, look, let's, let's stall on going back up there for a bit until yeah. we've done some research. Research. So right. they, they kind of canvas all the countryside and all the little hamlets for details about the other incidents that have happened up here. Right. Um, they even managed to get an ancestral diary of some kind. Yeah. So they're learning. 
Uh, my favorite bit from this section is one line he says, We came to know the squatters better. We found them curiously likable in many ways. <laughs> I thought, hey, you know, maybe Lovecraft has some insight into uh, his own prejudices. I mean, yeah, maybe. Yeah. If you get to know people, as it turns out, not so bad after all. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Maybe. Well, he and Arthur are learning uh, that these people in the surrounding hamlets have been getting killed for generations. Yeah, and it, and it coincides with these uh, storms. Right, and they can't really blame wildlife or anything because there isn't any wildlife up yeah. there. Yeah, when they go out into those woods in there, there are there's it's devoid of yeah. animals. So it's October now, and um, they've been researching for a long time. They There haven't been any more thunderstorms, so they're getting a little antsy. And as they scour... And it's getting close to winter. Exactly. Yeah. So they, they uh, winter, nothing goes on yeah. up here. So yeah. um, they're scouring one of these last unnamed hamlets for information, and they're kind of doing it rapidly. Yeah. As the afternoon advanced, it became increasingly difficult to see, and we heard the rumble of a thunderstorm gathering over Tempest Mountain. The sound in such a locality naturally stirred us, though less than it would have done at night. As it was, we hoped desperately that the storm would last until well after dark, and with that hope turned our aimless hillside searching towards the nearest inhabited hamlet to gather a body of squatters as helpers in the investigation. Timid as they were, a few of the younger men were sufficiently inspired by our protective leadership to promise such help. <laughs> protective leadership? <laughs> well, they have, they have heat. Right. But, you know... the. I wish these guys knew that the protagonist fell asleep earlier and both of his bodyguards got well, killed and yeah, then he didn't even true. report it. That's his Did, protective leadership. That's his protective, yeah. Well, he's got heat, man. He's got a gun. Uh, well, it starts really coming down. Yeah, it starts to rain. The storm yeah. is, is just kicking in a full gear. And so they run back to kind of a, a little shack, a little... A little mm-hmm. uh, like a little cabin. A little cabin. The most non-porous, I think. Yes, exactly. And uh, there's a great bolt of lightning while they're waiting inside there. It's It's... It's Arthur and our, our protagonist and a few of the other. Well, when they get in, they close the door. And yeah. They have there's like this shutter that right. gets put up over the window, mm-hmm. and it's like a kind of a ramshackle sort of a old broken thing, but it's still sturdy and still works. Right. But when that lightning hits outside, it hits a tree, and Arthur's kind of curious about what yeah. it looks like. So he unlatches the shutter and he sticks his set outside to watch the storm. Yeah. Gradually, a calming of the wind and dispersal of the unusual darkness told of the storm's passing. I had hoped it would last into the night to help our quest but a furtive sunbeam from a knothole behind me removed the likelihood of such a thing. Suggesting to Monroe that we had better get some light even if more showers came, I unbarred and opened the crude door. The ground outside was a singular mass of mud and pools, with fresh heaps of earth from the slight landslide, but I saw nothing to justify the interest which kept my companion silently leaning out the window. Crossing to where he leaned, I touched his shoulder, but he did not move. Then, as I playfully shook him and turned him around, I felt the strangling tendrils of a cancerous horror whose roots reached into illimitable pasts and fathomless abysms of the night that broods beyond time. For Arthur Munro was dead, and on what remained of his chewed and gouged head, there was no longer a face. Yes. Oh my gosh. That's awesome. That is that's pretty that's pretty nasty. Yeah, that's nasty and that's a complete like horror movie moment. I too, know. You know. That's the second horror movie. I mean, this thing is just like Herbert West in a way because it's action packed. Yeah, it's really it does feel very cinematic. In that first chapter you have the whole I mean, if it really was the thing's arm, it's that moment in the movie where you're in bed with the monster. You know, you, right. you roll over and go, ah! 
yeah. and then here it's pulling the body away and his head's chewed his off head's or his chewed face off. yeah his face is gone wow. that's it's pretty awesome i mean i know this was made into a movie but i've mm. never seen it that was uh it was a full moon production it yeah it was uh directed by c courtney joiner yeah but it's what's that guy that uh to run all those full moon productions uh charles band charles band yeah, yeah. it's one of those things so i i don't think it's very good but well here I, me, I'm, I'm gonna I'll, i shouldn't uh, speak out of turn i haven't i haven't seen it, it. i haven't yeah. seen it but let me, i'll read you the synopsis ex-con john martinez returns to his childhood home in leffert's corner after s- serving time for a crime he didn't commit <sighs> martinez visits family friend kang's a mortician who has been holding half of a map for him. The map leads to a graveyard where martinez's father hid the money for the last heist yeah. this doesn't sound anything like uh yeah. the story why bring a profit motive in there? I like it that he's just into creepy stuff. Why does he have to be an ex-con yeah. and all that business? Anyway, well, I haven't seen it. I think it, somebody else should do it. No, Stuart Gordon wanted to adapt this movie. I read about, but uh, it didn't happen. That takes us then into chapter three, what the red glare meant. We jump right into a night in November where our guy is digging alone. He says alone and idiotically in the grave of Jan Martens on the night of yet another thunderstorm. And he's really lost it because of what happened to Arthur, who he buried himself. Yeah, uh, and just sort of let other people think he'd wandered away somewhere. Yeah, it says that specifically that he mm-hmm. he just kind of let others think, oh yeah, he went off in the woods and we lost him. Never, I don't know where he went. He says that he's become strangely callous, uh, which becomes some <laughs> 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 people already died. But uh, finally, in this chapter, we get some of those details about the Martens family. History had led me to this archaic grave. History, indeed, was all I had after everything else ended in mocking Satanism. I now believed that the lurking fear was no material thing, but a wolf-fanged ghost that rode the midnight lightning. And I believed, because of the masses of local tradition I had unearthed in my search with Arthur Monroe, that the ghost was that of Jan Martens, who died in 1762. Well, here's the deal. Okay. All right, yes, yes. The house was built in 1670 by Jarrett Martens, who was this wealthy New Amsterdam merchant, Right. He, didn't, he didn't like the changes that were happening under nope. British rule, so no, no, no. he wanted to go somewhere for solitude. So he and all his descendants you know, moved into this place that he built up right. there. He built a little you know, cell or two because it's Thunder Mountain. Or, right. Yeah, no, exactly. it's not Thunder Mountain. <laughs> Tempest Mountain. <laughs> uh, if it was Thunder Mountain, it would be a totally different story. Yeah, it would be a fun ride. We found a roller coaster. Uh, and uh, so they could go to hide down there when they needed to if it was too thundery. Exactly. But they pretty much shunned the outside world. They, yeah, he did everything to do with the English. Yeah. And, you know, I was thinking about this today. This comes up a lot in his stories where families will pull away or people will... He talks about it in the picture in the house that people just sought more and more solitude and that made them crazier and crazier. Yeah. And it seems like almost a bit of self-awareness because he's constantly, you know, trying to dwell in the 17th century world and pulling away, you know, from the modern prosaic, yeah. you know, poison of life. But, uh, but I think he knows that that makes him crazier you know i mean he he has some insight into the fact that i can see that yeah yeah. that you know the more you pull away uh from a normal world the less healthy you get right yeah yeah i I I think so i could see that yeah he explains the uh, dissimilarity of eyes that he referenced earlier that the martens people all had one blue eye and one One brown eye yeah Yeah. so that would mean david bowie is actually a (laughs) <laughs> a Martins. Uh, you're right. Well, actually, Bowie... Uh, is it one green eye? No. They color it sometimes, I think, in album covers. But what happened is when he was a kid, he got in some kind of altercation over a girl. And the muscles in his eye got damaged so that it blew out one of his pupils. So it's always dilated. 
Oh, I see. So the difference in his eyes is that one is just huge. So it makes it look like it's a different color. Oh, I see. But it's actually not. But I think that they've actually colored it for... We'll save it for the David Bowie literary podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but that's immediately what I thought, too. Yeah. Because he, he, uh, he, he's he got the two weird eyes, and then he, he looks like he might you know be crawling out of a cellar somewhere. Yeah, it would surprise me. He looks hungry. You know? Yeah, he has no eyebrows. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, this does shed some light on the squatters being a little subhuman. I mean, maybe there's some truth to uh, what the protagonist is saying about them being so... Well, know, yeah, they, they Because started, they were breeding. They were breeding and right. breeding with their help and breeding with... The, so they kind yeah. of didn't have... Their gene pool was pretty small. Right, it was very small. Yeah. But, it, but it also crept into the hamlets a little right. bit. Right, out into the woods and the, um, the shanties and whatnot. Now, a lot of these facts we know from Jan Martens because he actually went out into the world when he heard about the Albany Convention, mm-hmm. which was, you know, pre-revolutionary right. convention that... Unified 1760. Yes. Uh, when he comes back, his family, they don't really like him now because he's so worldly. And right. uh, he writes to a friend of his, Jonathan Gifford, in, in 1763 that he's depressed by his, you know, my family's so lame. So, <laughs> they're so devolved, you know. Uh, and Jonathan says, you know what, I'm going to come out there. I'm going I'm to cheer my buddy up. His diary states that he reached Tempest Mountain on September 20th, finding the mansion in great decrepitude. The sullen, odd-eyed Martenses whose unclean animal aspect shocked him, told him in broken gutturals that Jan was dead. He had, they insisted, been struck by lightning the autumn before, and now lay buried behind the neglected sunken gardens. They showed the visitor the grave, barren and devoid of markers. Something in the Martens's manner gave Gifford a feeling of repulsion and suspicion, and a week later he returned with spade and mattock to explore the sepulchral spot. He found what he expected, a skull crushed cruelly as if by savage blows. So returning to Albany, he openly charged the Martenses with the murder of their kinsman. Man. Yeah. Murder was the name. <laughs> murder was the, murder name? was the name they gave him. This legal case, though, it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't. And because there's just not enough evidence, it's, you know, it's all shady, but word gets out right and everybody i mean before they were shunned the martins yeah. now they're really shunned yeah, like nobody's people, selling them they won't do business with no them way. they can't get any unless they can get it on that mountain they yeah. don't get it so yeah they I mean, really they sustain themselves on whatever overripe vegetation they have on the right. property or what animals yeah. they find and they and people see lights there occasionally i yep. think the last was in 1810 but right. after that just nothing not much activity in fact some of the squatters come to check it out in, in 1816 and they find it nobody's living in the yep. mansion at all anymore yep. um but there is evidence that the family had grown quite large because there's lots of mocked up little extra rooms and penthouses right 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 but there are no skeletons like no yeah nobody no rem- remains of dead people you would think that if if all the people that were up there died there would be sure bodies but you know they also find that they haven't used that they probably were still living there and yet hadn't used silverware for yeah. a long time so they've their appetites are their their you know their daily activities had devolved in, in some right. Way. They became animalistic. Right. I mean, that's what what he's implying. So our guy is thinking maybe this is a some revenge killing of some kind going on. Like well, I mean, Friday the Thirteenth scenario. He thinks it's know. the ghost of 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 Jan. Right. Right, Jan. That's how it's. Yeah, Jan. 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 I, you know, I, I think Jan Martens. I think of Jan Hammer, who wrote the Miami Vice theme. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, but I mean, I think it's also kind of funny that that's that's his. The evidence, the scientific evidence, yeah. brought him to the conclusion that it's a ghost of Right, him. I know. <laughs> He's like, well, they did murder that man, so it would make sense that his ghost is murdering people down in the... Yeah, yeah I guess. that's. Uh, I that's... bet he's doing it whenever they're, you know, smoking pot or having sex down there, too. 
Um, well, so we're, we're back again at the beginning of this chapter when he's digging in the grave. Yes. And even when he finds Jan's remains, which are barely there anymore. Yeah. It's for a... some reason in his, his ghostly uh, searches, he keeps digging. And he actually breaks through the ground beneath the grave. Yeah. There's some kind of subterranean but, passage. But yeah, as he breaks through, it, it crumbles and he, he falls. He falls mm-hmm. into some subterranean passage. Yeah. He crawls right down with his flashlight and he starts scrambling through this narrow passage. He goes straight towards the house. I have been scrambling in this way for some time, so that my battery had burned very low when the passage suddenly inclined sharply upward, altering my mode of progress. And as I raised my glance... It was without preparation that I saw glistening in the distance two demoniac reflections of my expiring lamp. Two reflections glowing with a baneful and unmistakable effulgence, and provoking maddeningly nebulous memories. I stopped automatically, though lacking the brain to retreat. The eyes approached, yet of the thing that bore them I could distinguish only a claw. But what a claw! I don't know what he said that. I, I, what a claw. Yeah, that's the delivery I heard. <laughs> I heard like Zoidberg from Futurama. But what a claw. Exactly. <laughs> then blast, a huge bolt of lightning hits the spot and it causes the passage to crumble in. Right. Well, I mean, the, the reflection of the two things, it's his eyes. Yeah. It's his eyes. Yeah, it's the yeah. eyes of the monster and, uh, and its claw, but when the ground comes in, it covers them. Both. Yeah. He, ma- he manages to climb to the surface. Right. He's able. He digs himself out he of this. Himself yeah, out. it's yeah. really creepy, and uh-huh. it's raining, and the mud, and the. And then, uh, and then he sees off in the distance this red glare. Yeah, something is shining red. Yeah. a big thing. So. And he... two days later, he finds out what that means. In a hamlet twenty miles away, an orgy of fear had followed the bolt which brought me above ground, and the nameless thing had dropped from an overhanging tree into a weak-roofed cabin. It had done a deed but the squatters had fired the cabin in frenzy before it could escape. It had been doing that deed at the very moment the earth caved in on the thing with the claw and eyes. Doing a deed. Doing a deed. Which I I assume is uh, murder and not masturbation. (laughs) Yeah, I hope so. That would be a really weird story. But, uh, But here he was looking at the monster. Right. And 20 miles away, 20 miles away, Yeah. Uh, something else was killing folks. So, there's more than one, or yeah, it's the same thing. It was in two places somehow, or there's more than yeah, there's more, more than, than one, one. I think is what he yeah. comes to the conclusion. He right. To. Then we go into the fourth chapter, uh, the horror in the eyes. There can be nothing normal in the mind of one who, knowing what I knew of the horrors of Tempest Mountain, would seek alone for the fear that lurked there. There is nothing normal in this guy's mind at this point. Yeah, he's. I think he's pretty crazy and obsessed. Yeah, I mean the the last chapter we seen that he was really upset. He was out in the rain, freaking digging in a grave. So yeah. it's like you can't be sane at that point. In in the next paragraph, he writes something that for me is sort of the fragment of the story that really kind of rises above the story itself. It says, "When two days after my frightful crawl through that crypt of the eyes and claw, I learned that a thing had malignly hovered twenty miles away at the same instant the eyes were glaring at me, I experienced virtual convulsions of fright." But that fright was so mixed with wonder and alluring grotesqueness that it was almost a pleasant sensation. Sometimes, in the throes of a nightmare, where unseen powers will one over the roofs of strange dead cities towards the grinning chasm of Nis, it is a relief and even a delight to shriek wildly and throw oneself voluntarily along with the hideous vortex of dream-doom into whatever bottomless gulf may yawn. 
At the end of the day, Lovecraft is constantly digging in graves and flying over dead cities and all that because it, <laughs> it kind of turns him on. Oh, right, yeah. You know, it pleases him. Well, the, I mean, doesn't it really uh, turn us all on? I yeah, mean, that's why we read it. But, yeah. I mean, you look at that, and, and I guess I could see why some of the more buttoned-up literary critics, before he kind of reemerged in the, in the 70s, mm-hmm. thought of him as a sick person. Oh, right, yeah. A, a diseased kind of mind. And maybe it was because of things like... You know, it's such a pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, people like being scared. I mean, that's why we see scary movies. That's why we, you know, do roller coasters. You know, that feeling is exhilarating. Mm -hmm. Well, so his discovery of that passage was quickly masked, as most things are in in Lovecraft, which is sort of another horror movie thing. You know, I swear to you, I saw it, man. It was out there. I don't know why. (laughs) You know, it's not here now. And the people who saw the the other thing drop out of the trees, they can't really describe it other than to say it was a, a devil. Right. Yeah, that's that's their only description. It was a devil. What do you mean? Was it tall? What color was it? It was a devil. So our guy is out there digging around, and as he's looking at the landscape of the house and the mountain and, and yeah. the surrounding things, something suddenly... Clicks with him. Yeah, it clicks. Related to the topography. There are all these mounds stretching out from the mansion, like tentacles Yeah. flowing out from the house. And he thought that they were caused by glaciers, but the regularity of them in the light suddenly kind of freaks him out. He thinks of, like, moles. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Before I knew it, I was uttering frenzied and disjointed words to myself. My God! Molehills! The damned place must be honeycombed. How many? That night at the mansion. They took Bennett and Toby first. On each side of us. Then I was digging frantically into the mound which had stretched nearest to me. Digging desperately, shiveringly, but almost jubilantly. Digging and at last shrieking aloud with some unplaced emotion as I came upon a tunnel or burrow just like the one through which I had crawled on that other demoniac night. He goes crazy. Yeah. Uh, running toward the mansion and just digging, digging, digging everywhere. Digging around the cellar. Uh, well, he goes in because he, he believes it's the focal point, the mansion. Right, right. So he goes in the mansion and he's just going, he's, he's so sure that there is something under the mansion. Yeah. That he, he's digging around like all through the mansion. Yeah. He notices that there's a hole in the chimney at the yeah. base of the house. Uh-huh. Uh, and then crash. But, you know, of course, a storm has started as he discovers this opening. And he kind of hides and he waits to see what the storm will bring out. Yeah, he says he, he has like a little hidey hole, which yeah. is kind of strange that it doesn't go into much description of exactly well, yeah. how I was actually a little puzzled whether he was inside the house or outside. Or outside of the house. I think I... he's outside when he yeah. finds the hole in the chimney. If heaven is merciful, it will someday efface from my consciousness the sight that I saw and let me live my last years in peace. I cannot sleep at night now and have to take opiates when it thunders. The thing came abruptly and unannounced. A demon, rat-like scurrying from pits remote and unimaginable. A hellish panting and stifled grunting. And then, from that opening beneath the chimney, a burst of multitudinous and leprous life. A loathsome, night-spawned flood of organic corruption, more devastatingly hideous than the blackest conjurations of mortal madness and morbidity. Seething, stewing, surging, bubbling like serpent slime, it rolled up and out of that yawning hole, spreading like a septic contagion and streaming from the cellar at every point of egress, streaming out of the scatter through the accursed midnight forests and strew fear, madness and death. God knows how many there were. There must have been thousands. To see the stream of them in that faint intermittent lightning was shocking. When they had thinned out enough to be glimpsed as separate organisms, I saw that they were dwarfed, deformed, hairy devils or apes. Monstrous and diabolic caricatures of the monkey tribe. 
They were so hideously silent. There was hardly a squeal when one of the last stragglers turned with the skill of long practice to make a meal in accustomed fashion on a weaker companion. Others snapped up what had left and ate with slavering relish. Then, in spite of my days of fright and disgust, my morbid curiosity triumphed, and as the last of the monstrosities oozed up alone from that netherworld of unknown nightmare, I drew my automatic pistol and shot it under cover of the thunder. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. And again, luckily, uh, he's done this before. After seeing something horrible, he kind of unconsciously finds his way back to a town. Lovecraft's very good at going, I don't know how I got back. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't really want to cover that in the story. Um, and in a week, he sends for some folks from Albany to come down and, and, and blow that whole darn mansion up, and, it, as well as the top of the whole mountain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah. level, the whole thing, yeah. you know, caving all the tunnels, you know. Yeah. But, you know, because of something he saw when he shot the thing, yeah. he's still tortured. And the story ends with him saying, What I saw in the glow of my flashlight after I shot the unspeakable straggling object was so simple that almost a minute elapsed before I understood and went delirious. The object was nauseous, a filthy white gorilla thing with sharp yellow fangs and matted fur. It was the ultimate product of mammalian degeneration, the frightful outcome of isolated spawning, multiplication and cannibal nutrition above and below ground, the embodiment of all the snarling chaos and grinning fear that lurked behind life. It had looked at me as it died, and its eyes had the same odd quality that mocked those other eyes which had stared at me underground and excited cloudy recollections. One eye was blue, the other brown. They were the dissimilar Martens eyes of the old legends, and I knew in one inundating cataclysm of voiceless horror what had become of the vanished family, the terrible and thunder-crazed House of Martens. Man, that is cool. That is an action-packed, nifty story. And that, and that, in the end, too, it man, it delivers. It does. That's thousands of. Yeah, them. yeah, and just the the one there, the 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 one that sees a weaker one in the group and just mm. turns on it and kills it, and eats it right there in front yeah. of them, and the others jump in on it. And it's like, whoa, man, yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> That is cool. It's almost like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre thing. There's this family of cannibals living down oh, there. Oh, gosh. It's just, it's, it feels like a movie. Like, the more I go through these stories, I find that almost everything. It's sort of like when you read The Martian Chronicles by Ray Bradbury. Uh-huh. Almost every modern uh, science fiction film, uh, science, you know, not science fantasy necessarily, but science fiction film is, is right out of that book. Right. Look, reading stories, I mean, like almost every horror movie is covered. Yeah. In some way or another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the, the somehow Lovecraft has influenced, you know, yeah. horror writers and horror filmmakers. Like yeah. maybe not even directly, you know, like mm-hmm. he influenced somebody and then they influence another person and yeah. so on. There's one thing about the story that um, I, I mean, I've read this before. This is an older and one of my of my favorites from when I was younger. Mm-hmm. But in my head, I was, and you and I had a, an mm-hmm. argument about this, is that he was. Descended like he had one, one brown eye, one blue eye, and yeah. then he was descended from the Martins. Right, but that's not the case. No, I, and I don't, I'm trying to figure out where I got that from. Well, I had it in my head when I, 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 I don't know if I read this when I was younger or not. I, I don't think I did. So I think I was under that assumption as well. And plus, it's a Lovecraft story about some cursed family line. So I just right. assume that the protagonist doesn't know it, but he's part of it. Right, you know? exactly. And and when he doesn't get killed in the first chapter, exactly. That's when I thought, oh, well, they didn't kill him because they're related. Yeah, like somehow they sensed his Mar- Martinisness. Yeah. 
<laughs> which is probably why in that Lurking Fear movie he's named Martinez. Right. Uh, you know what I mean. Right. But um, but no, he's not related at all. No, he's not. Thank goodness. Yeah, I'm glad he didn't need to be. But they don't really explain why he wasn't taken in the beginning. In in when he's you know realizing everything about the burrows, he says, "My God, they were they were on either side of me." And I think maybe the implication is that it was easier for them to snatch those guys away out the window or through the door. Right. And maybe it was just because he was in between the two that it wasn't as easy to do. Yeah. But... And then the thunder scared the guy away before he could. I don't know. Yeah, it, it's, it was a little iffy, and I felt like, uh, because it it tricked me, you know, mm-hmm. like, I, I thought that that was, when I read it, because I went in with the memory of him yeah. being, that was, he was left there. And then as I read the story, I just, it just confirmed that assumption that yeah. I made. And then when you, I went back and looked, and no, it doesn't say he is that. But it's a really weird thing in the yeah. beginning of the story to have. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. That's my I, only I think my only complaint is that complaint. that little set piece is, is hard to understand. There's a couple of good solutions in here. Don't go in and fight it. Just set the whole building on fire. Right. And then this guy goes, I'm not going to go down there. I'm yeah. not saying, you know, let's just blow the whole thing up. Nuke it from orbit. Yep. <laughs> it's <laughs> the only way to be sure. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> There's lots of the lurking fear in, in music. I think there's an 80s punk band named the lurking fear. Oh, there is? Well, yeah, there, I, I found them online. I missed, I missed this in my research. I didn't see Yeah, that. cool little website. I mean, I think that they're one of the many Lovecraftian-influenced bands that just oh, right, are yeah. around, especially at that time. I actually read a quote from somebody the other day that said, you know, Lovecraft occupies a really strange space because he's a writer that is commented on as frequently by metal bands as he is by literary critics. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. He's in a, it's a really weird thing. Right, you know? right. That both Joyce Carol Oates, you know, and Metallica right. are both, you know, concerned with <laughs> this author. <laughs> right? <laughs> What's going on with Lovecraft? It's, it's very strange. Yeah, he's got a, he's got a wide audience. You know? <laughs> yeah, people appreciate different aspects of it. Finally, so. something is bringing the, these two groups together. <laughs> <laughs> oh golly! Well, Chad, I think that's uh, that about wraps it up for this. Yeah, this went a little episode. long this week, but it's a it's a great story. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the story. Next week we are. Uh, doing the very popular rats in the walls with our we're, we're bringing back a, a guest host mr kenneth height that's right ken height will be, be back, back and uh, and, uh as we'll our third guest have, host it's gonna be an all-star episode powerful. i do want to thank uh paul mclean again of yogsothoff.com oh, yes. for great job paul for covering the lurking fear for us it, it was truly beautiful it was beautiful paul of cthulhu and uh yeah that's all that's all i have that's all i have i'm chris lackey i'm chad pfeiffer and this has been the hp lovecraft literary podcast hppodcraft.com hppodcraft.com 